Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Marshall Poe of the New Books Network. The NBN is run by volunteers, but we do have expenses. If you'd like to support us, please go to any New Books Network website. There you can make a tax-deductible contribution. Just click the Donate to the NBN link and follow the instructions. Alternatively, you can click the Amazon link before you make your Amazon purchases. Since the NBN is a member of the Amazon Affiliates Program, Amazon pays us a small fee for referrals. Whether you can help us out or not, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the following interview. Hello, my name is Christine Lamberson, and I'll be your host for the New Books in History podcast today. Today, I'll be speaking with Peter Leinbaugh about his new book, The Incomplete, True, Authentic, and Wonderful History of May Day, which has just come out this year with Spectre Classics. Hello, Peter, and thank you for joining us. You're welcome, Christine. Glad to be with you. Wonderful. So I was wondering if you could uh, begin by saying a few words about yourself. You told me uh, before we began that you like to think of yourself as a people's rememberer. You're officially retired, but still working hard. So I thought we'd start by talking just a little bit about, you know, where you came from, where you went to school, and how you became interested in history. Okay, that's a lot. I'm, I'm a child of empire. My mother and father uh, were diplomats for the United States, so I grew up representing the United States and grew up in the growing American empire, and I grew up in Karachi and London and Bonn, as well as Cattaraugus, New York, and Muskogee, Oklahoma. So growing up, I moved a lot, met a lot of different kinds of people, lost friends, and inevitably wondered why the world changed. Um, this was during the 40s, 50s, and I, that led me to history, Christine. Um, that's, the, that's, in a way, the science of human change, you might say. Mm-hmm. And I went to, you were asking me about school, I went to 17 different schools. Uh, before I went to college, I went to a Quaker college called Swarthmore, Then I went to New York, to Columbia University, where we were active for a people's university. We wanted to revise the curriculum so it was represented, especially African-American voices. Again, this is back in the mid-1960s. We were anti-Vietnam War and interested in that. Um, Again, a documentary interest came out of that because back then, they, they didn't even have the documents that were justifying the war, so people couldn't make up their mind. They couldn't examine the truth of things. And from there, I went to study with a great uh, peacenik, a great social historian named Edward Thompson in England, and that's where I took my Ph.D. And, uh, at the University of Warwick which was sort of uh, the Detroit of England. It was right outside of Coventry, where they used to make, uh, where they made cars at the time. In fact, Chrysler pretty much dominated Coventry. Many of your listeners will have heard of it because of the bombing of it during World War II. 
but by the time I got there, we had a, a, a collective of scholars from around the world, Canada and New Zealand, as well as the United States, and Edward Thompson led us in uh, really rewriting English social history from the standpoint of the common people. And that's the path I've been on since as a people's remembrancer, a historian of labor, a historian of common people. And I've learned so much from the women historians, from the African-American historians, um, as as they have clamored for a place in society worthy of uh, of, of of human dignity. And anyway, there's, there's my opening for you. That sounds wonderful. So from that set of interests, from that biography, how did you come to write this particular book? Yeah, this book, oh man, um, Christine, this goes back away. This book is about May Day. And when I was growing up, May Day, we were taught, was just something that the Soviet Union and the communists did. Um, they, they marched their, their guns and so on, on on Red Square. And I had no idea that May Day as a workers' holiday began in Chicago in 1886 and 1887. And so it's that story that I, I wanted to recall against the dominant ideology of the, of the Cold War, of the American ruling class, you remember the 1%, they changed May Day into Law Day. And they changed, um, they had to have a Labor Day, so they moved it as, uh, to September so that it wouldn't correspond with the workers' holiday that the whole world had celebrated, even though May Day itself, as a workers' holiday, began in Chicago in 1886. Or, you know, just for those listeners who are really fond of dates and want to inquire further into this subject, as I hope they will, the eight-hour movement had begun earlier. That is the, the idea that everyone should work no more than eight hours a day, leaving eight hours for sleep and eight hours for play. Um, that movement began right after the American Civil War and owes a, a debt to the African Americans to the struggle against slavery. And... That, that movement was picked up by workers in the North for liberation uh, against a kind of wage slavery. And that movement um, grew, especially in Chicago among the workers at the McCormick Works. The McCormick people produced the mechanical reaper. But the rate of profit there was more than 70%, and discipline among the workers was maintained by selective assassination. Of oh, that is, there were there were killings, police killings of, of their workers. And it was really as a result of of this struggle for an eight hour day, which was a national campaign, that the workers this called for a general meeting in downtown Chicago at the Haymarket. The Haymarket was a place where farmers brought in hay to feed the horses. Remember, this was a time before the automobiles and when transportation was done by um, animate power or horse horsepower. Anyway, uh, Sam Fielden, um, August Spees, and a, a number of others spoke on top of a hay wagon. And as the crowd began, as the meeting came to an end and the uh, sunlight dimmed, 
160 police showed up. And someone, and to this day no one knows who, threw a stick of dynamite. And dynamite was a new form of explosives that had just been invented. And this was the first time it was used against uh, workers. Anyway, uh, sadly, uh, police officers were killed. And this gave the rulers of Illinois, Chicago, and even the United States as a whole, gave the, the rulers and the police forces an excuse to raid the anarchists, the socialists, the newspapers of those who imagined a different kind of society than, than one of expropriation and exploitation. So they uh, arrested seven people and jailed them and, uh, after a kangaroo trial. And four of them were hanged uh, by the neck until they were dead on the 11th of November, 1887, despite an international campaign calling for, for their release, calling for their life. And August Spies, uh, one of those who was hanged on, on that day, 1887, he said, from the gallows, there will come a time when our silence will be more powerful than the voices you strangle today. And Christine, when I, when I read that, when, when a student from Chicago taught me that, when I first learned about it, I thought, well, now we must, we must make the silence speak. We must tell that story again. And it's as a result of that, that in the 1980s, I began to write the story of May Day. And that's how this book came to be. That's a wonderful story. And you, so the book has several different essays and sort of takes a look at May Day from a whole bunch of different angles and in different places and, and different sorts of celebrations. And you've already kind of started telling us the story of the title essay, The Incomplete, True, Authentic, and Wonderful History of May Day. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what happens to May Day after 1886. Yeah, well, it became, an, as I said, became an international campaign. Um, that is, uh, among Spanish workers throughout Spanish America. Uh, and, well, also Portuguese, also Brazil. Uh, it became uh, a cry for the European trade union movements in uh, Geneva and Paris and Berlin and in London. Uh, marches, uh, and then some of these marches were met by police violence. So the campaign to make people work longer, the campaign uh, was an international campaign by the business and employing classes, by the ruling classes, I like to say. Uh, this, this class, these robber barons, were international. And by the same token, those who opposed them were also international. If you are a coal miner, let us say, uh, working underground, you do not really distinguish whether that coal is uh, Mexican or U.S. coal. Um, a iron worker or a, a baker, whether from a shekel in Ukraine or whether in Paris or whether in uh, Toledo, Ohio, will be doing the same work. 
and it doesn't take much imagination to realize that that the workers have more in common than they do in otherwise. So it was it was an international movement really right away against you know against a revengeful, hateful uh, hanging uh, of these four four workers in November 1887. And then by a few years later, by 1892, uh, the International Trade Union and Socialist Movement had, was making May Day a workers' holiday. But, you know, Christine, before, before proceeding with that story, I think it's important for us to say, I've been talking about the red side of May Day. But May Day has another side to it as well. And that is what I call the green side. That is, you know, as now as we approach the spring equinox, uh, we're, and as we long for spring, at least up here in the Great Lakes, uh, despite the freakish weather that we are all having, still the, the notion that spring is a time of renewal, a time of rebirth, uh, a time of fertility is is on our minds, and, and along with the sap running in the trees, you know, our, our own spirits are also longing for this change. And so this is an old part, I'd say it's probably a Neolithic part of, of humanity that is going back thousands of years to celebrate uh, the green side, the renewal, the renewal of the, the vegetation and, and of, of fertility. And so Anthropologists have taught us of the many different forms of games, of holidays. Uh, religions have had, have had to make, um, you know, the Christian calendar, for example, um, Easter is uh, been settled as a to correspond with with this time of year and with these forces of resurrection and of of renewal. So this the green aspect of May Day. That is one of celebration and fertility was deeply opposed by the Puritans and by employers. And I think maybe it's really uh, significant. You know, I said earlier that we had forgotten the origin of May Day, but we've also forgotten the, the origin of puritanical work discipline. I mean, the first Maypole ever erected in North America was erected on May Day, 1627. And it was erected by a man named Thomas Morton, who gathered around him, and get this, gathered around him Narragansett Native Americans, um, Ganymedes, or gay people, um, slaves, as well as many... Uh, uh, people from, from Europe, from England. And this maypole was put up. Uh, and then the Puritans from Boston uh, came down and, and raised it. They cut it down and, and made war upon Thomas Morton and the others. And if, you're, if your listeners want to learn more, I, I would recommend reading Nathaniel Hawthorne's wonderful story called The Maypole of Marymount. Anyway, there there is a like a rainbow coalition um, at at the birth of of New England uh, that was quickly snuffed out. 
But as you know, history takes strange turns, and there's you know, various roads that w- were not taken, and it might be better to say roads that haven't been taken yet, because you know here we are in the 21st century, and already the notion of human diversity that was celebrated in 1627 at the Maypole is a, is a general goal all of us accept, just as we accept emancipation from slavery, which also at one time was forbidden, at least by uh, white supremacists. So I want to, you know, put in the green side as well as the red side mm-hmm. to, to the May Day story. That's a wonderful story, especially about the first May poll. And I have many different questions going in a couple of different directions. But since you've just mentioned um, the issue of diversity and talked a little bit about the intersections of May Day and, and workers and race, I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about that aspect of the history of May Day. And one of the things that I love about your book is you talk a lot about different locations of celebrations of May Day and different, um, both from an international perspective, but also from within the U.S. And I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about those kinds of intersections and how um, May Day has been part of that larger history of um, diversity and race and and that sort of set of topics. Yeah, well... It goes back uh, in my mind right now to the 1790s when one of the slogans, this was the era of the French Revolution, the era of equality, fraternity, and liberty. Uh, One of the slogans of that time was, the sun shines on all. And so in addition, say in England, the milkmaids would, would celebrate May Day by giving out free milk. And they were helped out by the chimney sweeps. So these are parts of antiquarian social history. But then I read, and uh, at the same time, uh, well, in 1808, at Congo Square in New Orleans, 20 different dancing troops of of African Americans and other people of color uh, danced to the drums on May Day. And some have have even gone so far as to to trace the origins of rock and roll to the drums of Congo Square. Um, I'm not a musicologist, and so I can't attest to that. But I do want to say that that our history of May Day is filled with interesting. Um, well, I was going to say bits and pieces, which when you put them together really is a, it can be a uh, interesting um, cornucopia, an interesting kaleidoscope of, of color, of hopes, and of dreams. Uh, it is a celebration, and it, it's opposed to the puritanical notion of constant dreary work. It is a, and you find this among, uh, well, you find it among Native Americans as well. You know, look at the ghost dance of uh, of the High Plains. Um, this also has some May Day aspects. And again, when I say May Day aspects, I don't mean to to assimilate all these things to one one banner, but rather that this is a time 
when the planet's relationship to the cosmos is changing. And so all kinds of human beings recognize the importance of it and want to celebrate it. So this, this is the, the green side. So that, there's a couple more examples, I think, of different stories in North America. Of course, during the 1930s and 40s, uh, on the East Coast and, well, all over, Chicago, San Francisco, New York especially, May Day was celebrated as a workers' holiday. That is against fascism, against the, and against the rampant exploitation of, of capitalism. And so May Day is also inextricably associated with anti-capitalism. Um, it's against expropriation. That means taking you away from your means of subsistence. And it's against exploitation or the oppression by making others work without giving them the, the value of their product, without giving them uh, the creativity of their own toil. So that is an essential. And I, I think, um, Christine, I was thinking about our interview and wondering what is the importance of May Day in 2016? And of course, the answer is, so many people are wondering what is socialism what is communism? What is anarchism? What could possibly replace the war-making, exploitative, and oppressive uh, a regime and that affects so many institutions, and certainly the ruling institutions of the United States? And I think we have to rethink these institutions and rethink the United States. Um, and the campaign of Bernie Sanders has, of course, contributed to this. I, I, I learned that 31% of the young people of South Carolina in the recent primary um, were, were interested and favored socialism. And so I wonder, well, what do they mean by that? And maybe May Day would be a time to gather with neighbors, to gather uh, with fellow workers, to gather with fellow creatures, to use an old old term, uh, to discuss uh, what kind of future do we want, to give ourselves permission to dream, and not the technocratic utopias, not those utopias that that, uh, but and to relieve one another of our work, uh, the work of healing, the work of necessary for eating, for production of food. And I think, you know, May Day might be a time when we could think about that in relationship to finding some way of organizing, organizing ourselves uh, to remove what has been such a damaging and destructive uh, regime, that, that regime of dog-eat-dog, -dog, incessant competition, devil-take-the-hindmost, um, which are the values of capitalism. That's my opinion, Christine. That's wonderful. I was going to ask you what uh, we take away from May Day or what May Day means today. So that is well, perfect. Uh, well, that's, that, that's the meaning of the first word of the title, the incomplete, true, authentic, and wonderful history of May Day. So the dreams of May Day are by no means completed, and it remains for us to do that. Um. And, you know, how many people now work eight hours? 
you know, the proletariat now, or the precariat, is vast. And those, and the invisible labors that the unemployed, the housewives, the, the reproduction workers, uh, th this is far greater than eight hours a day. And, and then, as for the precariat, then the, the people in demanding more hours are not really demanding hours, they're demanding the money that goes with it if they're on time wages. Right. So we, we need, uh, yeah, we need national insurance. We need to, to care for one another, especially uh, us workers, those, those who belong to our class of the working class, and to rethink uh, what that term means. And I think the campaign of Bernie Sanders has partly opened the door for that discussion. You know, not that I agree with everything. I think we need to do much more than just regulate the banks of Wall Street, though that's certainly a start. <clears throat> but anyway, this, this takes me, this is why the book is called Incomplete, why the story of May Day is not yet complete. Mm -hmm. It's ab above all a story of action, of direct action. And that's, that's really how the Chicago story, the May Day story, began with direct action. That is to stop after eight hours of work, just to stop working. Mm -hmm. You know, not to ask a political party whether it's okay and not to ask uh, Congress whether it's okay, but just to do it ourselves with our fellow workers. And we can do that with our other demands as well, our other wishes, our other dreams. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. So given the, the history that part of the history that you're telling and part of the history you've been talking about already this morning is a history of, of uh, snuffing out of May Day celebrations, of moving Labor Day to September, of instituting Law Day, of in some ways forgetting this history, at least within the U.S., of having that moment of an international movement, but also having a real kind of repression of this type of of celebration, how do we, of course, your book is one step towards that, right? Helping us remember this history and think about this history. But how do you see thinking about May Day and remembering this history and trying to urge more people, presumably particularly more young people, to know about this longer history? How do you see that moving into action? Or to put it another way, right, labor and labor movements are certainly something that is um, on the decline in some ways and, and oft criticized within the United States. So how does one talk about a worker's holiday as a way to kind of change that narrative? Yeah, I think we have to expand our own thinking a little bit. You remember just a few years ago in the United States, there was the largest May Day celebrations ever that were led by Los Angeles and Chicago uh, Spanish-speaking marches calling for um, a document, calling for citizenship, calling for a resistance to the uh, terror and fear of being a worker in the United States without documentation. So the way, so strange as it may seem, uh, May Day is brought back to the United States from those who have remembered it. And those people have been in Mexico, they've been in Central America, they've been in South America, where even during those Cold War years when the United States repressed that memory, in those countries the memory was preserved. And people celebrated 
the the martyrs of Chicago, even though they lived in Mexico or El Salvador. So as those people come to the United States, as the undocumented worker becomes a, a new figure along with a precariat, um, they will join with the traditional, well, I'm, uh, I won't say labor movement because so much of it is reactionary, but there's one possibility. Christine, I'm just uh, speculating here. Um, I think Mayday's always called for a kind of uh, activism. Uh, you have to remember the slogan back in the 1880s was, well, see if I can remember, agitate, educate, organize. So the first step was to stir people up. Second step was to begin teaching and study. And the third step was action and organization. And perhaps there's wisdom in that for our task now, um, to agitate, to educate, and to organize. And, um, you know, I'm just a, a scholar and, and a book writer, uh, and others are highly skilled at social media, at using the Internet in different ways, uh, different, different media. I mean, the, the huge marches in Los Angeles and Chicago led by Spanish-speaking radios were, were not done by books. You know, that, that mobilization took place by word of mouth. Um, so I think there's certainly sort of an evangelical, you might say, side to May Day. You know, you've got to go out and preach, preach it, so to speak. You know, remind people, as you and I do, of our history. Um, you know, thinking of the big the Kent State murders in Ohio was right after May Day. Um, I think your own work... Uh, puts association with the Jackson State killings in May Day, and May anyway, if not May Day. And so what we need, we need help from our fellow workers. And odd as it may seem, the way you say help in the French language is May Day, is give me aid, or they say May Day, the international stress and distress signal. So there's a pun which, which can, which can help us. Um, yeah, I, I, you have an essay calling for Obama to participate in that march with immigrants here. Well, this was a few years ago when he came here to Ann Arbor, uh -huh. and we were, um, and we wanted to bring Mayday to his attention as he spoke in the big house, you know, the the stadium of the football team, mm -hmm. uh, and we had a march of immigrant workers and Spanish workers, but we didn't get very far. Um, but it did make us think of, of Obama, who, you know, at a personal level, we had nothing against. But as, as an executive authority, we had a lot of questions and a lot of criticism as, uh, as, a, war, as a war president. And, and also, you know, that particular essay that I wrote about Obama wanted to, uh, because I was quite moved by his book, Dreams, Dreams from My Father. And I wanted to think rather what were his father's dreams rather than his dreams. And they both came from periods of defeat, both his fathers, his biological father in Kenya and his, 
his uh, social father in Indonesia. Both of them were hooked up with the uh, petroleum uh, industry uh, back in the 1950s, and they both emerged from periods of defeat of revolutionary liberation fighters in Kenya, Mau Mau, and in Indonesia. And they were quiet about it. They were silent about it. They wouldn't talk about it. And so Obama grew up with that silence uh, from the defeat of revolutionary liberation movements. And this, in some ways, Christine, I thought, was the opposite of the African-American experience, which has a big element in it of pride for having been the first or among the greatest liberation fighters in the world, you know, and having overcome uh, chattel slavery. So Obama did not grow up with that experience. Um, anyway, that was part of the part of the points in that particular essay about Obama May Day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because when he came here, it was also the, the 50th anniversary of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, mm-hmm. and of SDS, the Student uh, Democratic Society. And we were supporting uh, and celebrating the Jubilee of those organizations, where Jubilee means forgiveness of debt and return of land. You know, it's an old biblical uh, custom, which which we think um, could be remembered again, you know, for a return of the earthly commons uh, away from the exploiters and 1%. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, that that was that essay. Jubilee, Obama, Kenya, Indonesia, somehow trying to put it together okay. to understand him. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, I wanted to ask you about one other specific essay. Of course, if there's any particular ones that you want to talk about, I'd be happy to hear about them. But you have one on the uh, Ypsilanti, or I might be saying that wrong, Vampire Mayday, which has yeah. first a great title, but also some really great metaphors and a particularly rich story. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that kind of uh, Count Dracula metaphor that you see in that particular story. Well, um, Christine, I, if, if it's all right with you, yes, I'm trying, I, I was going to read just, um, on May Day, sometime in the 1890s, an ordinary Englishman boarded a train in Munich. His destination was a castle in Transylvania, a country wedged between the Danubian provinces of Moldavia and Wallachia. It was a dark and stormy night when he arrived, and the wind was howling hard. So that's the way that essay begins, with a deliberate, you know, uh, emulation of the vampire and Count and um, Frankenstein stories which were composed back in 1817 by Mary Shelley and uh, Byron's doctor. These two stories, Dracula and uh, Frankenstein. So the idea was very simple, that the ruling class of bloodsuckers, the vampires who want to suck every bit of blood from our lives as they could. You know, at that time, 
uh, Matt uh, Talibi uh, criticized the banks, calling Goldman Sachs a great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity. It's a great image. Yeah. And, you know, then uh, Karl Marx used to say, capital is dead labor, which vampire-like lives only by sucking living labor and lives the more, the more labor it sucks. So here is a very old image, as you say, an old metaphor, which on investigation comes from uh, peasant folk tales. Uh, in that part of Europe, where the struggle against the Ottoman Empire and for Greek liberation was taking place back in the 1820s, at the very time that the abolitionist movement in America was being uh, led partly by the tremendous writings of David Walker, you know. Uh, so I was relating those two historical facts to the subsequent history in Ypsilanti. And part of that history concerns Ypsilanti's just down the road. It's between Ann Arbor, where I'm living, and Detroit. And at Ypsilanti is where uh, B-24s were constructed, airplanes which helped to, um, which bombed German cities during World War II. And so I was telling the story of, of that uh, production of that air, aircraft facility because it means so much um, to this part of the Rust Belt where there's no longer the production of, or at least that I know about, that may be secret, of, of mass weapons of warfare like those airplanes that... <clears throat> Howard Zinn, the great people's historian of the USA, who he flew such a plane, not one produced in Ypsilanti, though he knew of them, and it's as a result of his bombing of a French town in 1945 that he began to question the war itself, seeing it not as a war of democracy, but a war of empire. And then from there, his criticism, his, his thinking about America and his fellow workers only advanced. So, so these are some of the themes in Ypsilanti Vampire May Day. Uh, I guess another theme that is so important in that essay is the theme of dictatorship. And this, you know, just the other night, um, what's her name? Clinton, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders were debating uh, up in Flint, Michigan, where the water has been poisoned mm -hmm. uh, with lead. And this is a result of many things, but it's certainly of carelessness and of values that put money ahead of people and puts profit ahead of health. So this was done by an emergency manager, which is the name used now for dictators. Mm -hmm. uh, that is those who, for the length of the dictatorship, can rule without law, rule without 
check by representatives is the suspension of representative government or democracy uh, for, because of a so-called emergency. So these emergency managers uh, were being appointed at Ypsilanti, long, just as they were being appointed in Detroit or in Flint or in, or in Benton Harbor in Michigan, these forms of dictatorship. So this essay on Ypsilanti Vampire May Day was also questioning and comparing the emergency managers to the dictators of ancient Rome, especially to Sulla. So that, that essay, you know, wanders through classical history, through the Balkans, the Ottoman Empire, the Russian Empire, uh, in order to... Oh, I didn't explain. The town of Ypsilanti is named after a general and so-called freedom fighter in the Greek Wars of Liberation back in the 1820s. That's how that that got put there. And I wrote it down at the request of some workers in Ypsilanti. They asked the People's Remembrancer if I would do that. And so that's, that's what I was able to do. Put my scholarship to work, I like to think. <laughs> that's wonderful. That's the way it should be, right? I think so, too. I, I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah. Wonderful. So, so as we kind of um, you know, move towards wrapping up, are there any other particular stories that stand out to you as some of your favorite or some of the really most important for helping us have a more complete understanding, albeit still incomplete, but a more complete understanding of the history of May Day so far? Well, I, I, I would like to mention James Green's book. You know, if I were just getting interested in May Day, there's, you can find books, especially older books, but James Green has written a recent book called Death at the Haymarket, which is a very good retelling of what happened in Chicago in 1886. And also Martin Duberman, the wonderful uh, gay historian, and wonderful historian of the civil rights movement has written a wonderful novel about uh, the the Haymarket bombing and May Day back in the 1880s. So I, I I like always to to ask listeners, you know, to to continue their their study, um, and because that study should be part always of our activity. You know, we want to learn as we go along. Learning is never over. So uh, this book doesn't mention Kent State as as it should. Also, it's I think it's it's quite weak on the history of May Day in India and Pakistan. Uh, I think the most effective May Days that we've seen and I've seen in my lifetime transpired in South Africa where Zulu, Xhosa, and uh, um, Afrikaans speakers and English speakers uh, joined in bringing apartheid down, uh, led by the Mine Workers Union. So, you know, this, again, is why the book is called Incomplete. Um, there's so much to discover, so much. And the best way of dis Oh, uh, Christine, the other thing which I should mention... How could I forget this? Is the children. 
It used to be that we all danced around the maypole. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember back in sixth grade we did that. Learned to make patterns along the maypole with the ribbons that descended from it. You know, each child holding a different ribbon, often of different colors. And you would dance in and out, boy and girl, around the maypole. And this would form a lovely picture like a barber pole. Lovely patterns on the, on the pole. Um, I think that we should bring that back. That should become part of, uh, of elementary school. And it should become part not just of the school, but of those common areas that we still have. And I, I, I think that we should do this, you know, in our parks and find other places. Actually, me and some comrades once did it in front of the Boston Bank, you know, back in the anti-apartheid days, mm -hmm. uh, just at lunchtime, you know, just to come out and have some fun and think about May Day and the change of weather mm -hmm. and, what, and whether or not we could change our lives, too, and change the system that we live in, which, of course, we can. That's the main message of May Day. Right. And how do people react to that? Well, with curiosity, with interest. Yeah. So I have another question, perhaps not quite as clearly uh, directly from the book, but one thing that strikes me from teaching about things like Haymarket is, and especially since you've just mentioned the children, right, and, and you've described the sort of the red, the green of May Day, that there's sort of two really different trajectories there, right? The image of children dancing around the Maypole has this very um, kind of innocent, the renewal, that kind of nice, warm feeling of, of spring that you've talked a little bit about. But when you're teaching about uh, the hay market, for instance, right, one of the things that strikes students, and I think often you see students, or often I see students not sympathizing with the workers who are involved there because there's a bomb of unknown origin, but because there is some perhaps use of violence. As, as you mentioned, I, of course, uh, study and write about Kent State and Jackson State, and there's a lot of, uh, or there's a serious lack of sympathy for students, or there is at least one strain of lack of sympathy for students because they're associated with violence. They're not associated always with that kind of firm nonviolence with innocence, and they can sometimes be blamed. And if how, do, how does one bring... If we're thinking about May Day as a call to action or as something that's needed in society, how does one gear towards gaining a larger audience and keeping May Day from having that kind of association that really led to a negative reaction to it in that early 20th century moment? Yeah, you can't. I don't think uh, you can make any progress without opposition. I think if you are a firm, committed, and dedicated activist, if you, you will confront and meet opposition. Um, so that, and we must learn how to deal with opposition. Now, uh, there's many, many different aspects to that issue, you know, from speech to civility to uh, symbolic actions to nonviolent actions to uh, to different forms of warfare to drones to atomic weapons to um, air force bombings um, 
there are many different sides to it, and we and these require the most careful uh, consideration. They are uh, they are deeply political questions and deeply important questions, and I think it's important to realize that we live in a society built on violence, built on the violence of the theft of land, built on the violence of slavery, built on the violence of incessant exploitation. And with that now, I think, comes isolation. So many of us are isolated, and the only thing we're offered for the future is, or one of the most common is drugs, uh, alcohol, pornography, um, and weapons. And these, we see it on television every night. We, God forbid, see it in our experience. But these are issues which we must combat by, as you do, by teaching uh, in and out of the classroom. We must use uh, soft voices when possible um, and listen with respect to those with whom we disagree. Because, again, I want to repeat my own experience, my own development, Christine, has been, has always required those who disagreed with me. You know, it helps to clarify my own thinking. Any athlete will tell you this, that their competitors, whether it's in the boxing ring or on the 100-yard dash, uh, their excellence depends on their competitors. And, and so it is, I think, also with uh, social and political change that we need opposition. And the issue of violence is generally portrayed as a matter of terror to incite fear. And of course, fear is an emotion uh, very powerful that, that prevents and distorts clear thinking. So I think our first, uh, yeah, we must recognize that the source of violence is social. There's social forms of violence. Everyone can see, the, yeah, yeah. I was trying to think of a Bertolt Brecht poem about the violence of the rushing river in contrast to the violence of the banks that held it in. Um, but that's as, that's as far as I can go, I think, on that very, very important question that you raise. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for telling us about the book and this wonderful history. Uh, we've taken up quite a bit of your time. So we usually, towards the end, talk a little bit about what you are working on now. Yeah, well, I'm working on a book called Ned and Kate, a love story among the Atlantic mountains. And this is a story about the commons. This is a story about the how the Industrial Revolution uh, didn't just mess up the atmosphere, it messed up human relations with the privatization of the commons. And so I'm telling a, a, a small story, a small love story of Ireland, England, and Central America uh, around these two people, uh, Ned and Kate. And that's what I'm working on now. That sounds like a wonderful story as well. I hope so. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.